It's Friday, February 10th, 2023. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, we all love a good ending. But has the culture around spoiler warnings gone too far? Plus, a roundup of interesting links and stories from my drafts, and the story of the Cool Stuff ride home. Buckle in, because it's going to be a long one. But you know what? For the last show ever, I'm writing as much as I want, and I'll make no apologies for it. So, for one last time, here's some cool stuff for your ride home. So there's a thing happening in several corners online right now in which people are posting spoilers for the ending and other plot points of Hogwarts Legacy, the new RPG from Avalanche and Warner Brothers. This kind of behavior is typically verboten in fan spaces. You might expect it from trolls organizing on 4chan or something, but not more mainstream gamer and fan spaces. The reason people are doing it is because a lot of people have boycotted the game. There are two main reasons behind the boycott. One is that Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling, who was not involved in the development of the game but presumably will earn royalties from it, has for many years publicly denied the realities of trans people and refuses to back down, only getting uglier in her statements over the years, in fact. Second, the game's plot centers around the goblins from the original book series, characters that have long been noted to be perpetuating harmful stereotypes about Jewish people, and the new game apparently continues even deeper along that path. So many people are boycotting the game and speaking up against it, encouraging others not to play it, which has of course created a bit of a Streisand effect, with it now being one of the best-selling games in a while, and to make sure that those who do choose to play the game at least don't have a good time, some people have decided to post spoilers about the game's storyline. There is a lot to unpack there, most of which I am not going to be doing today, but I do want to tease out one thing, which is that people boycotting the game knew that one of the cruelest things they could do to fans who were playing it is reveal how the game ends. Because endings and critical plot developments are so precious to us that to reveal that information to someone can be seen as a punishment. Some people want so badly to have that first-time experience they can never get back that they'll go to great lengths to avoid spoilers. Now, I think most people would agree these days that revealing a twist ending for a recently released movie is a faux pas, but spoiler warnings seem to be everywhere these days, sometimes popping up for pieces of media that haven't just been out for years, but sometimes decades. At what point does the spoiler warning expire? And how much of a movie or book are you allowed to talk about without the warning? And why are spoiler warnings everywhere these days? Let's first return to Harry Potter. Because while a lot of people currently sharing Hogwarts Legacy spoilers are doing so with a bit of an activist bent to it, a lot of them are probably doing it just to stir things up. And this is not new. It's not even new to Harry Potter. When Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, the book, came out, I was doing a summer term at Cambridge University, and as you might expect, 
Potter fever was pretty intense over in England in 2005, but even more so among the large cohort of American teenagers who self-selected to study abroad in England. Because of our grueling study and field trip schedule, hardly any of us managed to stay up all night reading the book in one go after attending the midnight release at a local Waterstones. It took us all quite a few days to read it, and our RAs were reading it too. They didn't want to be spoiled, and neither did most of us. So if any students were caught spoiling any plot points to the sixth Harry Potter book, the RAs threatened to not only take your book away, but the one RA who didn't care about the book series would tell you who died at the end. Spoilers as punishment, once again. But that was nothing compared to the spoiler avoidance and security around leaks when the final book in the series came out in 2007. Not only were there fans going wild theorizing and guessing at what might happen in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, but non-fans all over the world got involved as well. People were placing substantial bets on the outcomes. It dominated every news show. And following claims from the previous book that people had gotten their hands on early copies and were trying to sell them to the newspapers for tens of thousands of pounds, the publishers got serious. GPS trackers were put onto book pallets. Guards were stationed at warehouses securing the books around the clock. Surveillance trackers were put out on people of suspicion. Fake endings were written. And yet... One small retailer still managed to accidentally send out the books a week early. And with the help of online forums, people all over the world managed to find out some of the most crucial spoilers and then chose to spread those however they could. Posting them online, sending out mass emails, hanging signs on highway overpasses, showing up at bookstores with posters and megaphones. That one happened at the midnight release I went to. It was relentless. And there was no activist bent to that at the time, it was just to ruin people's fun. But honestly, my memory of avoiding spoilers, which, you know, you really didn't know if they were fake or not until you read the book, because there were plenty of fake spoilers out there too, but my memory is that avoiding the spoilers was kind of fun. It raised the stakes and made the experience that much more exciting. Because, you know, how often do so many people around the world care about the release of some piece of art all at the same time to the extent that it becomes a serious business and creates ample opportunities for pranking or straight-up profiteering? That kind of thing is especially rare now. Now, there are big movie releases, especially in the Marvel and DC cinematic universes, and some TV shows that air their endings at the same time, even some streaming ones. But I think part of the reason that spoilers have become so contentious is because we largely don't consume media at the same time anymore. Before streaming and DVRs, people gathered around to watch big important episodes of TV shows all at the same time. And if you missed it, you missed it. You knew that you were headed into school or work to be subjected to everyone's revealing conversations about something that you'd be lucky to catch as a rerun someday. There wasn't really a chance for whoever missed the show to just watch it later that week, so why bother trying to avoid telling them what happened in it? Now, movies are interesting because certain movies with big twist endings have always had a bit of a culture around them where most moviegoers agree not to tell others who haven't seen it yet what happens. Sometimes there's even a kind of glee in not telling someone, in imagining how that person will react when they too watch that thrilling surprise and how you'll talk about it together later. 
You know, heck, even Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap in its seven decades of continuous performances in the West End in London has performers come on stage after Curtain Call and request that the audience not reveal the ending to people who have never seen the show. And speaking of the creators of the art themselves urging the audience to keep it a secret, in a piece on the history of spoilers for Tedium, Dayton Rose explains how Alfred Hitchcock was one of the first directors to really try to prevent spoilers. He was desperate for people to experience Psycho with the twist ending intact. Quoting Rose, He bought as many copies as he could of the novel that he had adapted. He hired the famously non-controversial, sarcasm, Pinkerton security guards to bar late entry to the film. There were no private screenings. There were no pre-release interviews. End quote. Rose also points to the extent Marvel filmmakers go to keep the surprises of their films under wraps. Even most of the actors themselves never see the full, real script. As audience members, there tends to be a sort of assumed grace period, during which you can make an effort to not reveal spoilers. How long that grace period should last has always been a little debatable, but it has completely blown up in this era in which there are so many shows to choose from and we all watch them at different times. After the release of Avengers Endgame, the Russo brothers encouraged people not to spoil the movie but then announced that the spoiler ban would be lifted 10 days after its initial release, as if they could control that. But it's an interesting insight into how long that grace period ought to be, and the extent to which creators try to control the response to their art. Rose has found many earlier instances of this. A 1926 mystery film called The Bat encouraged audience members to not reveal the identity of the bat to future audiences. And author Wilkie Collins asked critics to keep plot details in their review of his 1859 mystery novel The Woman in White at a minimum so that readers could get the full experience of the suspense and surprises. Now, interestingly, this is something that Collins only cared about when the three-volume book set version of The Woman in White came out. He had already published the whole story in a weekly serial, so a lot of people had already read it, but they would have been reading it all at the same time as each bit came out week by week, no one else having access to the ending sooner than anyone else. But when it came out as a book, people might read it at different speeds and at all different times, relatively. And that is when Collins became worried about people spoiling it for others. This, to me, is a great analog to broadcast versus streaming television. Yes, you could have gotten spoiled before with broadcast TV before the age of DVRs, but you should have been keeping up with the show like everyone else. And if you really cared about it, cared enough about being spoiled, you probably were. But now, we watch shows asynchronously. We watch shows a few weeks after they drop all in one batch, all of us watching at different speeds. Or we watch shows that came out years ago. But there are so many to watch these days that a lot of people realize it can take years to get around to popular shows and will respect not giving away big plot details within reason. But should we be practicing this much care? 
The YouTube creator man-carrying thing has a great short sketch about the kinds of people who get upset if you reveal anything about any show that they haven't seen. Did you mention something from the trailer, the plot summary, the first two minutes of the pilot, or even just that you liked the show or hated it? That's all a spoiler. How could you? We've probably all encountered someone like that at least once, or maybe someone who shrieks spoilers when you mention the plot of a novel published in the 1800s. We've sort of built this culture where it's rude to reveal the plot of literally anything because since we all consume content so asynchronously, you never know what anyone else might be currently reading or watching. But are spoilers really that bad? Dayton Rose at Tedium points out how, for many performances throughout the centuries, audiences were already familiar with the source material. They knew how things would end. They were largely based on classic tales. And even in the case of original works, the playwrights would often tell you the ending right at the beginning of the play. Rose gives the example of Romeo and Juliet, a slightly original story in which Shakespeare tells you exactly what's going to happen in the opening monologue. A pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. This technique is called anomalous suspense, when you still feel suspense all the way through despite knowing what's going to happen. On the occasions in which I have been spoiled, I've felt this anomalous suspense, and I think it often holds up to be just as exciting as not knowing at all, although it does create an entirely different experience. Rose points to a 2011 University of California San Diego psychology study that I have almost certainly mentioned on this show before, which found that when subjects were asked to read a story after having it spoiled, their experience actually improved. Now, I think I've brought this up before when I heard about a technique for reading the plot synopsis, spoilers and all, of horror movies before watching them. If you're the type of person who gets a little too scared of watching horror. That way, the twists and shocks have been spoiled for you, so you don't have to sit in total fear, and you can focus on the other interesting parts of the movie. Though, as Rose counters, quote, you will have your entire life to rewatch something, to treasure its aesthetic victories. Something can only surprise you once. End quote. That is certainly how I felt about the final Harry Potter books, and Avengers Endgame, which came out when I was at a camp in the mountains, fortunately away from Wi-Fi and most cell service. When camp ended a few days later, I drove down the mountains straight to the nearest movie theater and didn't turn my phone on until the last post credit scene had finished. You know, maybe some media is more enjoyable when you've been spoiled, or if you've already seen it before. I think there's a big adjacent discussion to be had here about how rarely we re-watch things nowadays, and how that might affect what we think the point of watching something is, and even the physical, chemical, or psychological reactions in our brains when we watch or read something the first time versus on a repeat, and maybe how we've trained ourselves to crave one over the other. That's just me spitballing. What I will say is that spoiler warnings do make sense to me in the internet age. The internet is another space that changed things, even long before streaming television and movies. Instead of just talking to your family, friends, or coworkers in person about whatever movie had recently come out, spaces and relationships in which you might have had a good sense about whether they had seen the movie, were planning on seeing it, or how much they cared at all about being told major plot points, 
But starting about with Usenet boards in the 80s, people were communicating with strangers whom they had no context for. Quoting Rose again, Posted on Usenet September 6, 1982, user Jim Collimore urged a waiting period of 10 to 14 days to let a good cross-section of net users see the movie if they're interested. A reply suggested placing some kind of warning in the post header. Spoiler, slight spoiler, sort of spoiler, non-spoiler, and infinite other variations became common phrases. End quote. Not for nothing, this internet dynamic is kind of where trigger warnings came from, too. That particular phrase has been lampooned to death at this point, but the idea of warning people about the content of a particular post makes sense. You know, when you're in person with a group of friends, you already know if, perhaps, someone in that space recently lost a parent, and discussions related to that might bring up some really tough feelings. Or if someone in that space is sober and talking too much about alcohol could be hard for them. We make these courtesies in our everyday life without thinking about it too much. But online, you don't know who is going to see what you're posting, and the way feeds increasingly work, people don't always exactly have a choice of what they're exposed to. Trigger warnings, or content warnings, function the same way the warnings do at the start of a movie or a TV show when they tell you why it's age-restricted, or on nutrition labels when they provide allergen information. The people making the movies and the packaged food don't know every person who is ultimately going to interact with their product, so they have to provide a little more information so that each person can make the safe and healthy decision for themselves. Now where it gets tricky, and I'm going back to spoilers rather than content warnings here, is when a person's desire to avoid spoilers interferes with other people in the same space's desire to fully discuss the content at hand. Rose argues that writers and directors who make it a point not to publicly discuss revealing plot points of their works do that from a place of projection about how they would like to experience movies or books as audience members and readers. But, Rose argues, not all audience members and readers are alike. You can't make that assumption for a fan. Quoting Rose, "...fans, first and foremost, have their own best interest at heart." Secondarily, they prize the interest of other fans. Only in distant third place do fans worry about the artist's vicarious enjoyment of a work, and artists have to be okay with that. Art works best when everyone gets to choose their level of engagement. End quote. I think that hits the nail on the head. We all need to be able to choose our own level of engagement. And that can be a tough thing to navigate when we spend more than half of our lives floating in a digital sea of strangers. Decades in, we're still trying to figure out how to get along with one another online. Being inclusive and supportive of each individual's needs in a community has never been easy. Sometimes one person's needs contradicts that of another's. But making an effort to think about those considerations and how the space you're creating or the content you're posting might affect other people in different ways is vital to us having any hope of harmony online. We're not always going to get it right, but if we at least try, maybe we'll encounter a plot twist that changes the genre of our current social internet from a dystopian horror to a thought-provoking and heartwarming Pixar movie or something. And you know what? That is a plot twist I'd be okay getting spoiled on. 
In a Notion database right now, I have 1,158 links to articles and other media that I bookmarked as possible segments for this show. There's even more in an old Google Doc I used before switching to Notion. Now, a lot of those are stinkers. I didn't ever use them because I couldn't quite find the right angle or didn't think it would be interesting enough. But there is a lot left in there. Enough that I initially thought I would spend this whole week only pulling from that list and covering segments I always wanted to do but never got around to. What I quickly realized, however, was that there was so much there I couldn't even decide. I couldn't narrow it down. So that's why this week continued to mostly be current topics that I found this week, just like any other episodes. And not all of these bookmarked stories will go to waste. I intend to use them for inspiration for videos, newsletter entries, social media posts, or jumping off points for larger projects. You certainly haven't heard the last of me, if you don't want to. But for now, I thought I'd do a quick roundup of a handful of standout articles, videos, websites, and more that I have bookmarked over the years that you might enjoy exploring on your own. I'm not saying this is the best of the batch, just a few that stood out to me today. And a lot of these I haven't fully vetted yet because, as I say, they were pretty much just bookmarks, so I don't fully vouch for them, but they seemed intriguing. First up is an AI-powered dream interpreter. And I gotta say, I couldn't remember a recent dream, so I just typed in the most traumatic nightmare from my childhood that I still remember, and dang, the AI interpreter actually gave me more to think about with that dream than I had ever considered before. I know it's all just a bit of fun, but wow. Next recommendation, uh, Consequence started a new series called Viral Vault, in which they explore the history of early viral videos. They've only published one article so far, but it's an interview with Greg Brolsma, aka the Numa Numa Dance Guy, so they are off to a solid start. CNN spoke with current and former NASA astronauts to pull back the veil on the fairly secretive process of astronaut selection for missions, with a focus on who might get picked to be the next people back on the moon. And speaking of space, one way that I've always kept up with launches, meteor showers, and more is via the New York Times' space calendar, which you can sync with your personal Google, Apple, or Outlook calendar. It puts those events on your calendar and then includes a brief description about the event, plus a link to the latest or most relevant Times article on that topic. There are tons of stories I haven't done over the years because they really rely on you being able to see the art or photography associated with them. One that's relevant to this time of year is so-called Vinegar Valentines. When greeting cards first took off in a big way in the 19th century, it wasn't with Christmas. It was for Valentine's, and later Halloween as well. But Vinegar Valentines were specifically designed to insult the recipient. Maybe an ex you truly had ill feelings for, or maybe just a friend who you thought would appreciate the joke. These pair really well with the San Antonio Zoo cockroaches and Topo Chico scorpions that I shared earlier this week. I'm a huge fan of 19th century greeting card culture and art, so I was always tempted to cover this story, but you're really missing out on the full vibes if you don't see the cards themselves, so you can do that and read more at the Atlas Obscura link in the show notes. 
And speaking of Atlas Obscura, their podcast is a good one to follow if you've particularly enjoyed when I have covered stories about holidays, international cultural traditions, and weird food history. Just for fun, I am going to drop a link to a long read from the Seattle Met all about the life and death of Clippy, the Microsoft Word paperclip assistant. And I'll also put in the links a voice changer website that offers classics like Backwards, Old Radio, and Cathedral, but can also make your voice sound like a Dalek, Bane, or V from V for Vendetta. The creator of the site also notes that they are currently working on an AI-powered real-time voice changer that will work with Discord, Zoom, and more, so look out for that. Another visual one, there is a photo essay about the Vizomatic, a department store from 1950 that kind of invented proto-online shopping. Uh, There are so many more that I could share with you, but I think in a nod to the origins of this show, I will leave you with an excellent video from Minute Physics about the physics of N95 masks. And if you are wondering what that has to do with the origins of this show, well, listen on to the next segment. So since I announced the end of the show earlier this week, a lot of you have come out of the woodwork and sent me the most wonderful messages about what the show has meant to you, what time of day you listen to it, how long you've been listening to the show, and I really have been taken aback by all of your kind words. And I also kind of feel terrible to be taking this away from you. But I don't want to dwell on that. I will say I have been pleasantly surprised how many of you said that you have been a regular listener since the very beginning, back when this was the coronavirus daily briefing. So I actually started working with Ride Home Media just before that iteration of this show launched. I knew Ride Home founder and tech meme Ride Home host Brian McCullough from our days as TED residents. He knew that I had done podcast work before, so when he needed a substitute host for the election Ride Home, after the initial host Chris Higgins had to depart for personal reasons, Brian asked me, and I was happy to give it a shot. I don't have a professional background in politics, but I am a bit of a news junkie, especially during election time. So hosting a show that gave me an excuse to follow and report on all the latest polling and rallies instead of getting distracted from my other work by not being able to help following all of that was great. I hosted my first episode of The Election Ride Home on February 21st, 2020, just 11 days shy of three years ago today. That show was always intended to only last through the primaries, not to continue through to November once there were only two main candidates. What we didn't realize was that, particularly following the great exodus of Super Tuesday, the election, which had seemed so momentous and inescapable, would be overtaken in the public consciousness by something much more serious. Super Tuesday was March 3rd. We kept the election ride home going for 10 more days as Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders continued to duke it out. But starting literally the morning after Super Tuesday, regular listeners to ride home shows were directed to this announcement. 
Starting on Monday, the Coronavirus Daily Briefing will be the latest podcast to join the Ride Home Media Network of Podcasts. Every day around 5 p.m. Eastern, we will catch you up on the latest news surrounding the coronavirus COVID-19. This will be a quick 15-minute summation of all the latest numbers, headlines, chatter, commentary, and context around the coronavirus outbreak that day. If you find yourself nervously refreshing your browser and feeds every five minutes all day long just to keep up on what's happening, we've got you covered with this podcast. The Coronavirus Daily Briefing, officially launched on Monday, March 8th, 2020. I joined as a writer, editor, and eventual part-time host on March 16th after finishing up the election ride home. It was one of, if not possibly the, first daily podcasts devoted to COVID news. Because of that, we were featured by Apple Podcasts and got a huge surge of listeners right at the start. Tens of thousands tuning in every single day. Of course, as the days and weeks went on, and it became clear that this was much more than just a minor outbreak or just a two-week lockdown, as any listeners of ours would have known early on, Every other media outlet started their own daily podcast and newsletter about COVID as well. Every state and local government agency was doing daily updates too. That's part of why we changed the name at some point to the Coronavirus Morning Report, because daily briefing was getting snagged up in reports from local health departments when you tried to search for it. Working on that show was certainly an experience. I spent the first few months of the pandemic alone in my apartment reading through endless reporting and preprints about the virus and trying to figure out the most responsible way to report on something that even the experts were still trying to figure out. It was a small team, just myself, Brian as the host, and former Ride Home staffer James Welsh. As tough and at times dark as it was, I was enormously grateful for the experience. First, just to have a remote job to pay the bills at a time when so many people, several of my family members included, were getting laid off. I can never say thank you enough to Brian and James for giving me that opportunity at that particular time. But I was also grateful to feel a sense of purpose. I woke up every morning and had a lens through which to view the tragedy unfolding around us, a reason to dig deeper and rigorously sift fact from fiction. I felt like I was doing important work, and I like to think that I was. But with the more crowded field, we were no longer the only COVID news show, but one of hundreds, and as time went on, people, by and large, stopped needing daily updates. You know, of course, there are many people who still follow all of the news to this day, every single day, but think back to April of 2020, when public health officials in the U.S. had just started to agree that, yes, masks were probably a good idea, and actually wiping down your groceries probably doesn't do anything. There were so many unknowns at the start. But once we had sorted out a lot of those unknowns, once we had a better sense of what the virus even was— People didn't need daily updates. Our listenership began to drop off. So we started shifting the show into something that Brian had always wanted to do. A show just about the coolest things in the news each day. We started gradually. First, we slowly added more uplifting or irreverent news related to the pandemic. The drive-in movie theaters screening new movies when normal cinemas were still closed how antibodies from llamas might be the key to COVID treatment. 
And then on May 11th, we rebranded to the Good News Ride Home. You'd get an A block of pandemic updates and then a B, C, and maybe D block of uplifting or at least interesting news. Slowly that summer, we transitioned into just the good news, with pandemic updates here and there when they seemed really important. And then in August, we began our partnership with Jason Kotke and Kotke.org, one of the longest continually running blogs on the internet. We brought in a bunch of his regular followers and adopted a style and content selection that matched his curation style a little bit more. That was probably my favorite era of the podcast and the longest running one. I loved getting to know Jason better and to know a lot of the community that he's fostered over the decades, and many of you are still here. Eventually, though, the numbers just weren't there to keep the podcast self-sustaining. We tried a few things and ultimately decided that, especially if we were trying to run more audio-based ads on other podcasts to promote this show, we needed a name for the podcast that was a little easier to understand. Kotki is an institution unto itself at this point, but Jason would probably be the first to tell you that people don't exactly know how to spell Kotki when they first hear it. So, for the fourth time in this show's short life, we changed the name, this time to The Cool Stuff Ride Home. And it worked, pretty much. We got enough new listeners to keep going for quite a while, and I felt a little less pressure around accidentally ruining the Kotki legacy. But now, we're a little bit back in that place of not quite having the numbers that we need. And listen, is there a big public push that we could do to rally the troops and save the show like at the end of a feel-good 80s movie? Or any number of other creative SOSs? Probably though I don't know how long any of those would last. And the truth is, putting out a daily podcast is hard work. Exhausting work. We don't have a huge team behind the scenes. You know, I don't have any research assistants or audio engineers. Ride Home handles admin and business stuff, but otherwise, it's just me. Picking stories, researching, writing, recording, editing, and promoting every single day. Each episode is an average of about 2,500 words. That's equal to or beyond what a lot of writers consider a really successful daily word goal. Granted, as you all know, a lot of that is block quotes from other people, but that's still a lot of creative energy that I'm expending each day. And as much as I truly, genuinely love it, it makes doing literally anything else very challenging. And as a freelance creative, I always have other projects going on. Over the past three years, I've turned down a lot and taken a step back from other things. It's been a real personal battle trying to figure out the right balance and where I want to go. I don't think I would have ever elected to end this show if we were operating at the top of our game. Though, even then, there have been moments when it's been so tough to juggle the podcast with other commitments that I considered it. But when we were looking at yet another instance of needing to save the podcast, and with the knowledge that each time we've done that, our numbers have slipped from before, and the convergence of a few other factors not entirely unrelated to the larger challenges hitting the tech industry right now, it felt like the right time. So what's next? 
Well, Ride Home Media will still be here with the Tech Meme Ride Home hosted by Brian, as well as the Ride Home Fund. I have started a newsletter, which is mostly a centralized location for people to keep up with all the things that I'm doing, especially as more and more people leave Twitter and join more fragmented private networks. But I also think I might put more writing in there, dig into some of those stories I never got around to here, reflect on current events. It won't be a newsletter version of the Cool Stuff Ride Home. It won't be every single day, for one, more like once a week probably. But it might be a little similar with a bit more of my personality and opinions. And I'm working on how I might tie the newsletter into a podcast and video feed as well. So if you always listened to this show on your commute, as we always intended, and aren't really a newsletter person, subscribe anyways so that you can be alerted if and when the audio version of it begins. Again, it won't be exactly like this show, but you might still enjoy it. And if you are still on various social media platforms, I'm putting links to my Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok in the show notes, as well as my YouTube channel. I've been a regular creator on YouTube since 2007, more earnestly since about 2014-ish, and I'm looking forward to getting back to being a little more active over there. If you're ever in New York City, I perform Fridays and Saturdays with the experimental theater company The New York Neo-Futurists. Our show, The Infinite Wrench, is 30 original plays performed in 60 minutes. So we write two-minute or shorter plays, new ones every week, and perform them all for you, as ourselves, not as characters, in just an hour. The show happens every single Friday and Saturday, but we cycle in and out as ensemble members, so I will be back in the show for most of March and May. And if you don't live in New York City or won't be visiting anytime soon, we also stream the show live on Twitch every other Saturday. The Neo-Futurists also have a podcast called Hit Play, which is similar to our stage show, but with a bit more uh, audio experimentation. I'm on that from time to time, and we are actually doing a live recording of it on Monday. This Monday, the 13th, at Caveat in the East Village. I am not in the show, but I will be in the audience. It is being hosted by Cecil Baldwin, an alum of our theater company, who you may know as the host of Welcome to Night Vale, which was created by other alumni from the Neo-Futurists, actually. So if you like live podcast shows, look it up, link to that, and everything I'm mentioning is in the show notes. I also guest host on the podcast Harry Potter and the Sacred Text from time to time, and am helping their larger production company run a summer camp-style retreat for adults this summer up in the Catskills. So if you have any interest in joining me in the woods for s'mores and sing-alongs and live podcast recordings and panels on thoughtful artistic experiences, you can check that out. And my buddy Bo Mendez and I have a podcast called Everything's Bigger, in which we overthink things, mostly through the lens of modern masculinity. It's a conversational podcast, the type of podcast that our friend Tom calls a high-fidelity phone call. It's also a show whose description, meandering as it is, rendered Ken Jennings speechless when Bo tried to describe it to him while he was on Jeopardy. Anyway, I also do a lot of public speaking at schools, conferences, companies on topics ranging from podcasting and online video to LGBTQ plus issues. So if you're ever in charge of an event and need a speaker, hit me up. 
And, I, you know, depending what the future holds, I might finally write another book. That is a big priority of mine for the future. So clearly, I have a lot going on, and while I am excited to jump back into some of these projects and explore new ones, I wouldn't trade the time I had at the helm of the Cool Stuff Ride Home for anything. To quote my friend Hilary Asari in a goodbye email when she left the active ensemble of our theater company, I wouldn't know what the next chapter is without the thrills, peaks, and valleys of this one. End quote. When I started working for Ride Home almost exactly three years ago, the pandemic was just beginning to hover over our heads. And like all the rest of you, the pandemic has changed me in a lot of ways. I'm not the same person I was in February 2020. Not all the ways I've changed have been from the pandemic. Some are just the natural course of growth as a human, and some are from doing this show. You can't spend every single weekday for three years executing the exact same workflow and not have that leave an impression. But of course, while the workflow may have been exactly the same, the content never was. I got to wake up every day and learn something new, and then share that with thousands of people. I have learned so much about the world, about the universe, about myself, and I'll take those lessons with me going forward. This has truly been one of the best jobs of my life, and I am so grateful to each and every one of you who has listened, whether it's been every single day or just here and there. And to those of you who've written in and shared the show, you helped reassure me that I wasn't just speaking into the ether and reminded me that the numbers in our analytics represent real, complex humans. I've done a lot of things in my life that have fizzled out or never really ended or ended abruptly without my prior notice. It's rare that I've had a chance to think about how to end something and how to say goodbye to people who don't want to see it end. And I'm realizing, several thousand words in, that I'm not quite sure how to do that. I've already said more and gotten more emotional than I probably should have, and if I keep going, I will only get sappier. So I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. And if I left you with anything from this show, I hope it's a reminder that no matter how harsh the world can be, there is goodness and wonder out there. The earth keeps spinning. People continue to show up and help one another and achieve awe-inspiring things despite all odds. And if you stay curious and kind, you'll always be able to see that. Thank you for listening. It has been an honor. And that is it from me for this show. The Cool Stuff Ride Home has been produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you sometime. Take care of yourselves. <laughs>